Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. All right, we're into our third week in this series for the month of September called 127. And if you're new with us and you're wondering why the number, what does this mean? Genesis 127. People are created in God's image. And as a church family, we value people. We see this alive in God's heart from the very beginning of his word all the way through the last words of Revelation. God loves people, and he's created people with value and worth and importance, and he renews and he redeems and he restores, and he calls you and I as his followers to carry on in the same spirit, that you and I would value and love others also. Now, if you're a regular human being, which I think all of us are, Uh, We love love when it's fun and easy. And then when it's hard, it's a little different, isn't it? But by God's grace, you and I have been loved. If we're honest, I mean, we were the lost sheep, right? And so we created difficulty in God's world. And if we're honest, we still do. We continue as we're being healed to hurt at times and to hurt others. We continue in our own ways just to be a little bit difficult or a little bit ornery from time to time. And if you don't believe that about yourself, get married and then get feedback from your spouse. <laughs> we value people and we need, we need God's help to love people according to their worth. We value people. And as we talked about in the first week of this series, we treat people differently than the rest of the world treats people. Because of how God views people, it it changes how we view people. And in circumstances and situations where society might feel it's okay to exercise its power over particular people society feels it's better than, we say, no, that's not how it is. That's not the example that God gave us through Jesus Christ. And in other times and settings where, as people, we think, well, people who have power or influence over us, we, we think they're a bit different, and we can say X, Y, Z about them or treat them this way. We actually say, no, 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 that's not how it is, because the model and example we saw in Christ was much different than that. We value all people, and we'll treat them differently than the way we see people in the world treating one another. Last week, when our guest speaker, Doug Frederick, was with us, he did such a great job of helping draw our attention to this idea that Everybody, every unique person, including the most different from you person and the most disadvantaged people, the people in the margins, they're image bearers and they matter and they have potential. 127, we value people. Today I want you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, I see some of you reaching for your uh, phones, which is wonderful. Go to your Bible app, not your other apps, Bible apps. If you've got your real Bible with you, paper one, I love hearing the sound of your pages ruffle, so feel free to just ruffle a little extra as you're going to Acts 17. Makes my heart so happy. Acts chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 16 in just a moment. 
In the book of Acts, uh, it's a letter written to early Christians authored by this fellow named Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was highly educated, and he wrote a two-volume work that appears in Scripture. The first volume was called The Gospel of Luke, and it's the story of Jesus, and everything in the Gospel of Luke if you follow its sort of motif and flow, is moving towards Jerusalem, the epicenter of the Christian faith. And in his second volume, which is called Acts, or the Acts of the Early Church, Luke continues writing, but now instead of everything going towards Jerusalem, everything's moving away from Jerusalem around the world. Everything that Jesus came to bring and do wasn't meant to just stay in one place, kind of like what happens in Vegas. Well, that's a bad illustration, I guess. Stay in Vegas, okay, unwind that, rewind, pretend I didn't say that, but what, let's go with it anyways. What Jesus did in Jerusalem wasn't meant to just stay in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? It was meant to go global all the way around the world. And so what we see in the book of Acts is it actually starts moving. And so when we get to Acts chapter 17, where we are in verse 16, Paul is one of the early church leaders and he's being chased down. He's got fierce opposition because this message of Jesus was scandalous both to the very staunch, starchy, religious Jewish world and to the Roman Empire. So Paul's being hunted down. And so when, where we find ourselves in chapter 17, Paul's escaping Macedonia for his life and he ends up going into the city of Athens. The city of Athens. Most of us have heard of Athens before. It still exists in Greece. Be a lovely place to visit sometime and see all the um, artifacts and all, all the old buildings and all of that. At the time when Paul shows up in Athens, the city of Athens has sort of already passed its peak. When the Greeks kind of ruled the world about 500 years earlier, that's when Athens mattered most. The population was massive. It was the center of thought and philosophy and all kinds of religion. 500 years later, Rome had now taken over the known world, and so there was the large, very large Roman Empire, which of course was centered in Rome. But Rome allowed for Athens to still have great importance. So Athens, when Paul goes into Athens in chapter 17, where we're about to read, Athens is still a very important, significant city. It is, in fact, the epicenter still, for the ancient world, of philosophy and of pagan religion. People would say that you'd have an easier time finding an, an idol or a statue of a god than you would a person in Athens. Generous estimates say that the population of Athens may have been 10,000 people at this time. Some historians would say it might even have been as low as 5,000. The estimated number of idols in Athens at the time of Paul going in there was 30,000. 30,000 idols and statues around the city. I mean, they were everywhere. They were part of everything. They were watching everything. They were witnesses of everything. They were in rooms. They were in buildings. They were on streets. The idols were everywhere. Now, with that in mind, let's go to verse 16, and we're going to read through together to verse 23. While Paul was waiting for his friends who were going to come as he had escaped, he was in Athens, and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Well, no surprise. He was shocked to see this. It would be as if, um, if you're a, a germaphobe, uh, and the pandemic has really been a hard time for you, I'm sure. Um, imagine being, you know, having to walk through like a city sewer underground. 
for a germaphobe, it would just make your skin crawl. You couldn't handle it. You couldn't cope with it. That's kind of what it's like for Paul. He has seen the resurrected Jesus. He knows who's God. And then he enters a city, maybe 10,000 people, but he's seeing 30,000 gods everywhere. He's greatly disturbed. He's greatly distressed. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So Epicureans, they, they gather around this philosophical idea that life is really, it should be oriented around pleasure. And the Stoic philosophers, they built their thinking around this idea that life should really be built around thoughtfulness, rational thinking. They dispute with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. In the Greek there, it says he was preaching about Jesus and anastasis, or anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And so it was presumed in some of the places that Paul preached, they heard so much about the resurrection of Jesus, they actually thought that, well, this Christianity must have an idol called anastasis, because they talked so much about anastasis. They thought it was a name for some god or goddess. It is not. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the central piece of the gospel message. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Verse 21, I think, is a bit fun, a little editorial note from Luke. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I think if Luke was around today, he'd say, everybody in Athens was just on social media all the time. <laughs> Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar to the, uh, with the inscription, to an unknown God. So he literally was trying to figure out what was going on in this culture of the day, and he sees the idols everywhere, and he actually came to one that said, to an unknown God. And this reflects that even in that Greek world at the time, or the Roman world, but in the Greek city, there was a little bit of panic that we think we have figured out pretty much all the gods that exist, but what if we've forgotten about one, or there's one we don't know yet, and what if we cross them the wrong way? We better make sort of a, a no-name god that's the catch-all for all the other gods that we might have missed. And so that's what this idol was. And Paul sees an opportunity there. Oh, you're worshiping an unknown god. Then he says this, now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. I would encourage you this week to spend time reading the rest of this chapter and listen to Paul's approach of sharing the gospel in this kind of context. For our purposes today, I really want to allow this text to bring up a first sort of main thought or main idea, and here it is. Everyone is worshiping something. Everyone is worshiping 
something. Think about it in the story that we've just read. In verse 16, it says, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. In verse 22, I see that in every way you are very religious. And so in Athens, everyone was worshiping something. It was obvious. In our Western world context today, uh, our worship, it, it, it looks different, doesn't it? We don't have 30,000 idols in the Comox Valley, do we, that you can see? We don't have 30,000 statues that we see people bowing towards or sacrificing to. We don't have that. But if we carefully pay attention to the lives of people, ourselves included, we can see people worshiping, bowing towards things, can't we? We can see people making sacrifices for things. Paul was walking around the Comox Valley today, or wherever you're watching, and he came across an inscription to the unknown God. What might he identify as the God of our age in the Comox Valley, in your neighborhood, your workplace, your school? I was, uh, this, earlier this week, we had some former neighbors of ours that we really got to know well. They became great friends of ours when we lived in Victoria. And they were camping up island, and they looked us up on their way back down, said, you guys want to meet up for lunch? So we went to Goose Pit, had some sandwiches. They're very, you know, uh, open-minded about many things, not uh, gravitating at this point towards Jesus aggressively in any way, but he's pursuing them, and so I enjoy great conversation with them. And um, the woman, her name's Alessandra, she's maybe in her mid-50s or so. I was just talking a little bit about actually this story, and I was I was saying, you know, it was interesting because in ancient biblical history, one of the early church leaders walking into a city and all the gods are really obvious everywhere. I said, but it's different for me in my world today because I don't walk around and see a bunch of statues, but people are still worshiping things, aren't they? And she's like, oh, absolutely. So I said, what do you think? Like, what, what's the god of our age? And she said, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> but I think she was right in a way, right? Because this idea of image matters a lot to people, doesn't it? And certainly we live in a world that loves celebrity. And so maybe there's some truth to that, or, or maybe um, money. I was talking with my boys last night, and I was like, what do you think the God of Comox, Comox Valley is? If it's not Jesus, what is it? And Jackson, who's helping in the media booth today, said, I think it's possessions, I think it's money. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting thought, you know? What does that look like for a 13-year-old in the Comox Valley to be worshiping possessions or money? And so we had an interesting talk about that. I think for some people it might be sex. For some people it's this idea of power. Perhaps it can be best summarized. All, the, all, all these ideas can sort of maybe be wrapped into one primary god of our age. If you're to study the development of Western civilization, there's been this push towards elevating the autonomous self, the autonomous self, this idea that I get to rule me, this idea of self-definition, no one, no thing gets to tell me who I am, I get to define me. And for many people, that then begins to exclude how God has defined this is where we get uh, the language that you begin to hear more and more in our culture and world today of my truth. Isn't that convenient that we can each have our own truth? The problem is 
when uh, a society constructs and elevates uh, a spiritual economy or a faith economy or a philosophical economy that revolves around the autonomous self, what happens? We have a new pantheon of, what do we have, 80,000 people in the Comox Valley? I guess there's about 80,000 gods in the Comox Valley. And we're all bumping into each other trying to proclaim our godiness over the other, right? Because we all in the Comox Valley believe we are God. It's the autonomous self. And for some of you, as you're hearing me talk about this, you're like, hey, some of what you're saying sounds a little bit offensive. You can't tell me that I can't define who I am. You can't tell me that I can't rule who I am. Friends, this is the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. Immanuel Kant was one of the fathers of enlightenment and to this day continues to be one of the most influential voices in modern philosophy. He helped shape some of what our world has become, certainly in the West, and he proposed this kind of idea. An enlightened human being is one who trusts their own power of thinking. I can figure it out. You see, there's a, built into this idea in this language, and he's written papers and books and all kinds of stuff on this. Built into this is this idea that I need not submit to anyone. I can figure it out on my own. And it permeates through culture. Now, contrast all this, the self-centered chaos created by the pantheon of all of the us gods and the me gods in the Comox Valley. Contrast that with with the biblical narrative. In Genesis, as we've looked, 127, God creates people in his image. What does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that we bear witness to, we reflect God to our world. We're his representatives in this world. And when God created, if you read the first few chapters of scripture, he gives a primary command to people. Some people, when they approach Scripture, they think, boy, that Bible is just full of all kinds of rules. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. <clears throat> Pastor, author, and speaker Daryl Johnson proposes that in Genesis, God really just gives one command, and all the other commands throughout Scripture are just an echo of the one command. And Daryl Johnson takes a stab at paraphrasing God's one command to Adam, which is essentially... Eat from the tree of life, and for your own sake, don't eat of the tree of independence. Let me read for you what Daryl Johnson writes as a paraphrase of the one command. <clears throat> Adam, you are what you are because of me, your creator. You are a glorious creature, magnificent beyond what you yourself know. I have made you to be dependent on me for life. All I ask of you is that you be you, a creature, a human being. You are free, but do not use your freedom to try to be other than you are, a dependent creature. He carries on and says this, do not be or try to be your own God. For all your magnificence, you cannot be your own God. You be you, and I will be me. Do not try to be what I am. I tell you this for your own sake. If you try to be me, if you try to be an independent being, you will ruin your world. You will die. And if you follow Scripture's narrative, 
God gives the command to Adam and Eve, and they still choose their own way. Essentially, by taking the fruit, both of them were saying, I'd like to actually do it my own way, thanks. They're actually saying, thanks for your image, but I'd actually like to make one of my own. And it's great when you're raising kids uh, and you're sort of helping them learn the biblical narrative and the story of scripture. And I think almost all of our kids at one point in their development, and I can remember it in my own young years too, thinking, if I get to heaven, man, I'm going to talk to Adam and Eve because they sure messed this up for us. Like, I got to ask them some questions. What were you thinking? You idiot. But the reality is, I think the more self-aware we actually are, the more we realize our own sense of brokenness, lostness, we start realizing, oh, that's me. My, my pain and problems, with so many of them, are because I reached for the tree of independence, and I wanted to do it my own way, and I wanted to build my own image instead of reflecting his. It's the human problem, the autonomous self. There's a business coach named Evan Carmichael who wrote a book a few years ago called Your One Word. Maybe some of you have heard of this, read it, or seen it. Many business groups have looked at this. Essentially, he proposes this idea that every business or organization, yes, needs a, a vision, needs an ethos that it has clearly marked out, but it needs to be able to summarize it into one word. And when they can, they become most effective. In his book, he says this, figure out what your one word is. Your one word is your most important core value and becomes the rock that you stand on. It's an interesting premise. I've heard of businesses that have worked with this and even church organizations that have worked with this. And as a church family, this is something we're thinking about too. Now, this idea is fascinating to me. You know, if you like language, if you like words, the English language uh, has over one million words. That's a lot. Now, that includes uh, medical glossaries and so on. So, you know, a bunch of them we just don't know unless you're a doctor and then you only still know a small percentage of them. But one million words. Um, the average English-speaking person probably has 20,000 words in their vocabulary. And the average English-speaking person uses 2,000 unique words every week. So that's pretty good. Well done. Uh, but now we're being told, bring it down to just one. Boy, that's a big challenge. Could there be a word that matters so much it could change everything? On October 2nd, we're going to be talking about our church's vision moving forward. And many of you have heard it said many times over and over again through the last couple of years, our vision is always Jesus. So if there is one word for our church, it's Jesus. But I think the question I'm thinking about right now today is, what might Jesus' word be? If our word is Jesus, what's, what's his word? What was the one word that moved him the way he was moved. I think there's a lot of great ideas that could be out there. And I want you to ponder it. I want you to explore it. And I'm going to propose something. And you can think about it and think if you think this might be right or not. I think William Booth got it right. I think William Booth figured out what Jesus' one word may have been. 
Some of you may have heard of William Booth, others this is an introduction. William Booth in the 1800s and early 1900s was an evangelist. He wasn't born into a house of faith, but he discovered Jesus and found that Jesus was pursuing him, gave his life to him as a young man, and then felt a call to begin preaching. He just wanted other people to know the love, freedom, and truth of Jesus that he had discovered. And so for many, many years, he continued to find opportunities where he could share Jesus and share Jesus and share Jesus. At the same time, in his British setting, there was all kinds of chaos and social problems. So William Booth started tilting the work of the church and the gospel together towards helping the needs of people. He was incredibly moved by compassion for the suffering. And, and why? I mean, you certainly see it in the heart of Jesus, right? And so he thinks, we have to help people who have no place to live. We have to help people who have no food. We have to help people who have addictions. We have to help people who don't have food to feed their children. We have to help people who are not educated. We can help people. This is in the heart of Jesus, so we can take action motivated by compassion. And so with these two thoughts in mind, sharing the gospel of Jesus and doing the works of Jesus, William Booth launched what's become known as the Salvation Army. Before he died in 1912, the Salvation Army was already present in 58 countries in the world. This is before communication and travel are what they are now. Think about it. That was quite the feat. Today, in 2022, there are over 15,000 Salvation Army churches around the world. And the Salvation Army in church and in compassionate ministry like their thrift stores are present and active in 132 nations of our world today. Today, the Salvation Army is responsible for children's camps, for humanitarian aid, for disaster relief, for homeless hostels, for residential addiction recovery programs, children's homes, homes for elderly people, mothers' safe houses, baby safe houses, refuge centers for men and women, hospitals, schools, maternity hospitals, after-school programs, food banks, overnight warming stations in the winter and cooling stations in the summer. The Salvation Army continues to love and care for suffering people around the world and bring the message of Jesus' love and truth everywhere. And I think William Booth tapped into the one word that, that might be Jesus' word. In 1910, two years before Booth died, he was already frail and ailing in many ways. At this point, the Salvation Army had grown quite large, and they would have an annual convention for all of their pastors and leaders, volunteers, others who could attend, and thousands would attend every year, and 1910 was the first year that William Booth could not make it because of health. Due to communication at the time, word didn't really spread until all of the delegates got there, and a full conference was prepared for everybody who attended, thousands of people, but it became quite clear early on that William Booth was not there. Somebody near Booth, while he was elsewhere, said, maybe send a message to the conference. Could you pen something for them? Could you write a word of encouragement? Could you send a paragraph, a note of something? And so Booth ponders it. And then 
issues a telegram, not with a paragraph, not with a sentence, but with one English word. It looked like this. Anybody know Morse code? It's tele telegrams. It sounded like this. His word to the convention was this, others, others. I wonder if in God's heart, as displayed to us vividly through Jesus Christ, that might be his word, others. Contrast that with the God of our age, autonomous self. I think this is very deep in the heart of God. Others. I mean, listen to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10, describing himself. He says this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many or for others. This is mind-blowing to me. And if you've grown up in the church and you've been around God, Bible, Spirit, Jesus, your whole life, take a moment and just forget everything you know and just think about this. I mean, we sing about the worthiness and the wonder of God. If there was anyone in all of existence that could show up on earth and say, friends, it's all about me, it's God. And when he does, he doesn't expect any kind of response he doesn't give any kind of word like that. He shows up saying, I'm here to serve. You need a sacrifice? Okay, it'll be me. Why? Others. Listen to Jesus' words as he's praying in John chapter 17. He's speaking to his father and he says, Father, for you granted the son, speaking of himself, you granted the son authority over all people. Just step aside for a moment. You know the 80,000 autonomous self-gods that live in the Comox Valley, minus you and I, hopefully. Um, what would we do? What would humanity in the Western world do if we were given authority over all people? I mean, I think in a lot of people there is sort of like a good hope or a good intention, right? But wouldn't everybody along the way be tempted in some way, shape, or form to just tilt things a little bit towards themselves? Just a little bit, so that there's a little bit of a benefit or a bonus for them somehow. And here Jesus is praying, and he's like, Father, you gave me authority over all people. And if there was, again, if there was anyone in all of existence who could have said, so really this is all about me and let it all come to me and be for me, Instead, he says, you gave all authority over all people to me. Why? That I might give, not take. Give. Eternal life. How did he do that? By dying. Others. I love that this is at the center of our faith. A God who does not stand at the altar of his own autonomous self, but lays down his self for others. J.C. Riley, who was the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool from 1880 to 1900, 
gave a zinger of a quote to humanity when he said this, the highest form of selfishness is that man who is content to go to heaven alone. Friends, in CPC, our vision is always Jesus. But I suspect that the word that might be in Jesus' heart is others. And I want to commend you, Comox Pentecostal Church, those of you who have been part of this church for decades, those of you who are just sort of getting caught up into the life of the church and you're new with us in the last couple of years, I want to commend you because there is a wonderful spirit of love towards people alive in this church. There is a wonderful thing I've witnessed in you in these last two years where you love and value people. You demonstrate that you value 127, that others are made in the image of God. You believe in the power and the importance of this concept called others. I think of Calvin and Claire who are sitting in the back row in our room right now, who talked with me early on when we arrived and said, you know, we've got this great life group, but we've got to find a way to multiply. We could reach others. And it's so, I've been part of great life groups too, where it's like so tempting to just remain like inward focused circle, let's stay the same, never change, just, just us, just us, just us. And Calvin and Claire try a few different attempts and ways to multiply, and I've been there too, it's hard. And then they found a way and it worked. And so they started a new group with some other people that live in the area, and their group is focused on their neighborhood, not just the Christians in the neighborhood, the others who don't know Jesus yet there. I love that. Well done. Thank you for leading us with a wonderful example of leaving some of the conveniences and comforts of closeness with friends, maybe the 99, for the others. And I think you and I, the rest of us, could learn different ways that we could leverage our friendships and relationships with people in our church community and bring that open-hearted inclusivity towards others who don't know Jesus yet. And it requires change, right? Like the discomfort of multiplying a life group from comfort into something new. Maybe there's room for more thinking like that in our life groups and more new groups that start up thinking about how do we reach neighbors or, or this group of people who do this in our community or this group of people with this particular need in our community. I think of somebody else in our church who last week said, I've got this friend who, they, they're not part of church, they don't know Jesus yet, but I've just, I want them to meet some people so that they have an opportunity to maybe get connected to church and especially to Christ. I want them to meet Christ. And so their idea was like, I'm gonna invite them to watch Monday Night Football with me and I want some other people to be along. Could you come? I'm like, well, yeah, that sounds great. I'll go. And so last week we watched Monday Night Football together and their friend actually didn't come. But that's okay. We don't just celebrate the results. We celebrate the risks taken too, right? That was done in the right spirit. I'm going to watch Monday Night Football. I'm going to see if some other churchy people can join me and some people who don't know Jesus yet. I love it when it's not just us churchy people doing stuff. We can over-churchy ourselves, I think, at times. So why not include somebody else who doesn't know Jesus yet or a few other friends? Well done. Why would they do that? Others. Why did Calvin and Claire multiply their group? Others. I'm so proud of the spirit of volunteerism in this church. 
Last year, we had a roster of around 90 people who were on teams serving in various ways in this church. We gave one appeal in the summer, which is the worst time to do an appeal for new volunteers. And our administrator, Kirsty, told me this week, we now have 155 people who are on our volunteer list right now. Is that not amazing? That's wonderful. And I really have to give credit to Pastor Dave Postal for 20 years invested in this church, nurturing a culture along of let's roll up our sleeves, get busy, and make this about others. It's not about me. It's not about what I prefer or what I need. We could reach more. Pastor Trevor told me this week, he said, I have 40 children's ministry volunteers. 40. Wow. I know of a significant church that I have friends at. They, they've had to change their church drastically because they don't have enough volunteers and it's very inconvenient and difficult for them. And I think, by God's grace, I'm with you and you love others. And it would be way more convenient and comfortable for you not to serve. I mean, you could do other stuff with that time, right? But serving really doesn't make much of an impact for us. It's not about us and our name. It's, it's about Christ's glory and his word. It's about reaching others. I heard as well that we now have over 25 people who are helping with our care and benevolence ministries in our church. The kind of people who say, oh, it, somebody's had a baby, let's give, them, let's give them meals for the next bunch of weeks. We'll give them food. Oh, somebody needs a ride to the hospital, I'll give them a ride. You're carrying on in the spirit of Christ who showed up in our world saying, make this about others for the glory of the Father. And you're doing it, and I commend you for it. Why do you do it? You do it for Christ's glory, and you do it for others. In June, we ran a campaign called Sell a Thing, where we challenged our church family. Why don't you find something that you can sell, and then just let's give the proceeds together towards rescuing a Ukrainian family. And I think I saw Tatiana here today. Where is she? There she is. And Sasha and Tatiana are here from Ukraine and settling into life here. And we've been part of that story. And I won't name a name here, but uh, a gentleman in his 80s came up to me after that very first Sunday when we announced the campaign, and he said, you know, I'm in my 80s. I have five electric guitars. I don't need five. He said, I don't know how to sell things online, but if we gave this guitar to the church, could you sell that, and then let's help people from Ukraine. So we did. What a generous spirit. Why would he do that? Why not keep it for himself? Why not... Keep more, get more. Why not sell it and keep the money for yourself? Others. We did not budget to help Ukraine this year as a church. And over, over $12,000 has come in through our church to help Ukraine. Why? For Christ's glory, others. Last week, I announced rather quickly that we, in January, will have an Encounter with God weekend. And we're hoping as many people as possible will plan to be with us for that. And I, I mentioned this little line. I said, you know, if, if some of you couldn't come because of the cost, just don't be ashamed. Let us know because we're going to help make sure you get there. We'll find a way with our budgeting or somehow. Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, I heard about that, you know, making sure everybody gets there. If, if somebody can't afford, you just let us know. We're going to help them get there. So somebody says, we'll, we'll, we'll help make this happen for anybody who has a need. Why does somebody do that? I mean, why not keep your money for yourself? Friends, this isn't about tax receipts. It's about others. Helping others discover the love and truth and value of Jesus. 
why do so many people in this church family give monthly, like give regularly to our general fund? You could do a lot of other stuff with that money. Every month, every couple of weeks when I'm giving, there are times, I'll be honest as a pastor, that I give online and I look at the amount and I think of the kind of fishing stuff I could do with that. Hmm. You can think of other stuff you can do with the money you give to a church. Why do we do it? For Christ's glory, for others. Well done, Comox Pentecostal Church. I want to conclude today by looking at the last few verses in Acts chapter 17, the text we were looking at. You know, in the book of Acts, it's like the highlight reel of the church. Just everywhere they go, when the gospel's mentioned, all of a sudden, people in droves are responding to Jesus. Listen, how it, listen to how it goes in Athens, verse 34. A few, notice that? Not off to an exciting start. A few became followers of Jesus and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Pretty anticlimactic, hey? I love it that it's in Acts. Acts is sort of like the Instagram of the New Testament. It's like, look at this great moment we had, and this great moment, and this great moment. And then we went to Athens, and there was a few. And why celebrate that? Because just a few matters too. Why? Because it's about others. If you're serving, you're helping, you're loving, you're praying, you're trusting God, helping, trying to reach somebody in your neighborhood or whatever, and it's just proving to bring about little results, it's worth it. Well done. Others. Let's stand together. Today, as we conclude, God will forgive us for not singing a song to end the church service. It actually doesn't say in scripture you have to do that. It does say that we have to fellowship together, and so we're going to have churros. So I'm just going to conclude by praying for you right now. Would you join me one more time, just putting your hand over your heart? Father, thank you that in your heart is a deep, deep love for others. And that moved you not to withdraw from us in our weakness and in our mess and our brokenness and our sin, but to come as close as possible to bring rescue. You love us. And may that same love flow through us. Would you enlarge our love for others as a church family? Do it in every heart right now. Enlarge our heart for others. We need your Holy Spirit for this. Now, as we go into your world on your mission, we don't want to eat from a tree of independence. We choose to eat from the tree of dependence, saying, you made me. You are my Lord. I need you. May your spirit flow through us and help us to love others and bring your truth to our hurting world. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and everybody said. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.